Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Orion Taraban, and this is PsychAx, Better Living Through Psychology. And today I am very excited to be able to sit down and talk with Dr. Chris Harrison. Uh, full disclosure, Chris and I are actually longstanding friends. He was one of my clinical supervisors at my postdoctoral internship back in the day, and we've kept in touch since then. He's a really interesting guy, um, and I'm very happy to have you on the podcast today, Chris. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Orion. Yeah, it's really a thrill to be here. I'm so, so happy to be with you. So after you left the, um, the, the, the clinic that we were working at, you went to Facebook. Would you mind telling us a little bit about what you did there? Yeah, for sure. So at Facebook, I was, I was recruited in by a friend from graduate school, and I wasn't exactly sure what I was getting myself into. But what I, what I did know as I was going in uh, into the role was that there were individuals at the company and outside the company that were contracted through various parties that were reviewing content. So content, many of your viewers may know the term content moderators. So the people who are responsible for reviewing content that's flagged either by human beings or by artificial intelligence, machine learning classifiers that is content that the company doesn't want on their platform for a variety of reasons, according to their uh, their governance, uh, their policies on, on content. So a lot of the material that gets flagged is really egregious material. Think about the, the worst of the worst actors on the planet from child exploitation to terrorists to drug cartels. They leverage these platforms for their own nefarious means. And then there are human beings on the other side who have to review that content and make decisions. Does it stay or does it go? So that work was having a pretty dramatic psychological impact on at least some of the people who were engaged in the work. And the, and the company, now Meta, then Facebook, was aware of that. So brought in a team of psychologists to develop what we weren't calling this at the time, but what evolved into psychological health and safety programming for content reviewers or content moderators. So that was the work. It was figuring out what can we do to protect uh, protect harm from happening. So there were some digital solutions that, that I worked on while I was there. And then reactive support when people are exposed to things. How can we provide a level of psychological support to mitigate the harm that's unavoidable. So that was the work. And I, we started with full-time employees. And then I wound up moving into an area that I was very happy to move into, which was supporting the outsourced content moderators that work for big companies, like some big, big companies in the world uh, who, who serve this function of outsourced customer support or customer service for the world's big brands. So I wound, and they tend to be low wage workers all over the world because language specialization, language competency is very important. So I wound up doing work with all these companies around the world and figuring out what does psychological safety look like for you in your region with the different kinds of content that you tend to see uh, in your in your part of the world. So it was absolutely fascinating work. Did that for about four and a half years before I decided to move on. Yeah, I bet. I remember when you told me about this job, it made total sense to me and that there's going to be a lot of uh, really nasty stuff on the dark web. And I think in the beginning, I before you told me what you did, I couldn't understand the necessity for it because so much of it gets 
filtered away. So I don't ever really get exposed to the worst of the worst. I'm sure that there's a lot of debates around the boundaries of where you should draw the line for what is flaggable material. But I think Mm -hmm. we can all argue that there are certainly some really flagrant extreme uh, examples that uh, really don't have any place in a civil public discourse. Absolutely. And so uh, what did you learn? Like, what did you learn in developing these protocols for what you call psychological safety, specifically around online material uh, that might actually also be appropriate for just the normal end user of these products? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question and and really interesting. I'm still involved in the space uh, tangentially, and I, I can describe some of what I'm doing there now. To go back a step, whenever I would describe this role to people in my life, friends or well, networking professionally, that was often the response. And there's the the whole idea of this is that it's it's hidden. This is an invisible job in 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 industry and an invisible job to the tune of hundreds of thousands of people doing it every year wow. across all the different platforms. You think about the big tech firms, all of the every big tech firm, every social media platform has this army of content reviewers and content moderators. Most of us not involved in this space professionally would never think of it. You pick up your feed, your Facebook feed or whatever, and you just go through Instagram feed and everything's nice and that's lovely. That is so curated. It's nice because of this army of individuals that are taking down the stuff that none of us would ever want to see. It's a whole thing. Commercial content moderation is what it's called. It's differentiated from like Reddit, which is more of a community or Wikipedia which are community uh, moderated platforms. So this is commercial content moderation because these companies are, as we know, many of them, their revenue comes through advertising. So they don't want, if, if they became cesspools of this awful material, their ad revenue would likely dry up. So there are applications, I think, from what was learned in working with the content moderators for end users some of the some of the work that we were involved in, I think, and I've I've been away from it now for a couple of years, is making its way or has made its way into end user experiences. Some of the work that we did in the technological front was rendering images in black and white because color saturation can evoke a stronger emotional response in the limbic system. Just like the Rorschach. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly, precisely like that. And it's sequenced, right, from black and white, and then you put in some color. So, there, and there's some interesting research on that. So things like muting audio. So if it's a video, a, say a bloody video of someone screaming, render the image in the video in black and white, have the audio muted by default, and you'd have to unmute to hear it. Those are a couple of the digital kind of technical solutions. Some of those are present, I think, in end user experiences now as well. There are other groups that work on community engagement. I mean, endless groups that work on community engagement and user experience um, where they go out and interview people who are using the platforms and figure out what harms are, are being done and how do we mitigate against those harms. I think that results in things. And I was involved in a little bit of this work, like having in in a reporting flow, say some kind of child exploitation or or something comes through your feed or someone's feed and you report that, there'll be hotlines that are attached to that reporting flow for like missing and exploiting children's uh, resource centers or something in the country. So there's ways in which I think there's a recognition of the potential harms that can happen around certain content types. 
and then supports are built into a, into these reporting flows when they're actioned through the platforms. So some of that, some of those things we learned, and and I think the company was doing anyway, and and we're applying to end user safety, which is just a different category from what I was working on. Sure, it's definitely different because if it's your job, you can't choose to even avoid certain content. Yes. What about like digital diet? Uh, a lot of my clients these days talk about doom scrolling and it becomes sort of addictive. It's very hard to unsee something once you've seen it, to unthink something once you allow it access into your mind. Yeah. Is is there a place for just you know nipping this in the bud and and can and having more discernment over what you choose to consume digitally? Yeah, I think so. I'm trying to think of what was the film that was made about this. I'm trying to think of the organization and it's all uh, not coming up in my mind right now. Maybe it'll come up in a second. But yeah, I, th I think a lot of the firms have looked at this, like Apple with with their screen time app have given given end users the ability to see, and, and I get notifications on my phone, like your screen time is up X percentage or X many number of minutes or hours from last week. So I think there's there's loads of things that the tech companies are doing because of pressure, to be clear, because of advocacy and pressure that I think alert us as users to the amount of time that we might be spending on a particular platform. I think there's a hell of a lot more work that can be done there. Oh, sure. That kind of feels like when they put the health warning stickers on the pack of cigarettes. It's yeah. like it's a it's a bandage solution on a product that is potentially designed to be addictive. Yeah, by definition. Yeah. Uh, and I think that there is a lot that social media companies are doing to make their products as, um, you know, to keep users on them as long as possible. Yeah. So there's, it's an interesting dialectic, isn't it? It's like the time on platform, of course, is what's, is what's monetized. And then there's the, the other side that's saying, and too much of that is leading to some of the societal ills that we're seeing. Particularly, I always think about the, the, most vulnerable through through some of the research, like at adolescent girls and the level of personal happening, mm -hmm. what you're describing, once you see something, you can't see it, hear something, you can't unhear it. So the more someone is is on these platforms, obviously, the more exposure they have and the more risk that there is. So there's this interesting tension, I think, that all the firms are in the midst of working through. So Yeah, that's interesting because the, the research that I've seen most on social media usage and its deleterious effects is what you alluded to, um, that especially adolescent girls have really poor, um, like emotional and self-esteem outcomes when engaging, um, I think on Instagram in particular, yeah. but the idea here is it's, um, the unfavorable comparisons to like ideal body types in particular is yeah. creating somatic issues and um image eating yeah and a lot of female aggression is also relational and so that can also be um transcribed onto social media very easily for instance but there hasn't to my knowledge been a lot of research into how social media might be affecting young young men adolescent boys and and young men do you, do you have any thoughts on that and I'm not aware of any research in that space either. So, I mean, I have thoughts on it, but they wouldn't be thoughts based in in research at all. Yeah. Do you mind sharing your thoughts? You don't have to necessarily provide a citation. Yeah. I, I mean, I just wonder about the ways in which 
men are and, and adolescent boys are being portrayed. I think there has been an uptick in body image issues for adolescent boys. Again, I can't, I can't reference research on that, but I think the ways in which behavior and even and, and bodies are being displayed through these platforms can cause similar issues for men. I wonder about that, uh, you, you know, the whole topic of to toxic masculinity, I think has been in the zeitgeist now for some time. And I wonder sometimes about how men interacting with other men or responding to different challenges or difficulties in their lives with levels of aggression or, or, or anger impact, impact users. I wonder about, like, I think about my own son who's eight years old. He's not on any of these platforms. He's hardly on a digital screen at all. We, my wife and I manage that really carefully. Um, but, but like the YouTube effect is always present for him or already present for him. The idea of becoming like YouTube famous or an influencer. Uh, an influencer. Yeah. I think that's the profession that most children these days are aspiring. Yeah. To. He's not, he's not even been on, like he hasn't even been on YouTube before or Instagram before, but this idea in the culture. Oh, he still has that. He still has this idea of being an influencer, even though he's never been on the platform. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Quite an idea that it has that yeah. much power. So I don't know if that's specific to boys or or adolescent men. Um, there, you know, an area that that's not social media, but I can speak to just from my own experience in my family. I'm from a large family, lots of nieces and nephews. And there are individuals in my family who are raised on, not raised on screens, but had a lot of exposure to screens and social connection through video games and I witnessed a couple members of my extended family who have are now young adults. Uh, yeah, young adults. Oh, <laughs> I won't reveal their ages. Um, but they've had some struggles with mental health, some struggles with addiction. And I have no idea. Uh, I, I don't want to overprescribe kind of cause and effect there. But watching the amount of time they spent on screens gaming. And I think that's particularly uh present for boys, like more, more prevalent for boys than it is for, for girls. Again, we could look up numbers on that, determine if that's actually true. But I think that's a, a one of the ways in which I think perhaps more harmful effects are coming through screen time for boys and adolescent and, and adolescence is, is through gaming. I, I do worry about that. Yeah. Boys generally game more than girls, but I have read kind of mixed results about that, that on some level, the uh, virtual community that comes with gaming with other guys has been shown in some cases to have uh, a positive effect, but it could very well impact their ability to make those connections in the real world, potentially, yeah. Uh, yeah. where they might be even more valuable. One of the ways that I think um, uh, that social media might be impacting uh, boys in particular, though this is not unique to them, is uh, there's, a, there's an absence now of like a small pool like I think before social media, you could you could kind of start out by being a big fish in a small pond. You know, you could be um, the best soccer player in your in your seventh grade class. And that kind of meant something. Yeah, it's because you're comparing yourself to like the, the 10 or you know 100 people that are immediately around you. And so you, you kind of get a chance to have scaffolded self-esteem be built. Yeah. Um, and I think that the small pools are kind of drying up because of social media. It's like, no matter what you do, you, you just turn on YouTube or Instagram and there's like amazing people doing all kinds of things around the world. And especially if you're starting off and you're young and you don't have a lot of skills, you don't have a lot of experience. You just, you, you probably just 
are more sharply aware of the gap between you and like what counts as impressive on the world's stage. And you might despair of ever getting there. And maybe that prevents you from trying. And I'm thinking this is particularly impacting boys, because as you may be aware, there's uh, there's a crisis in young men these days. They're, they're not really graduating high schools, colleges, grad schools. They're underperforming in the marketplace. A lot of them are failing to launch. We don't really mm-hmm. see that as much with with young women that they're yeah. still staying at their parents' house in their mid-20s. Are you familiar? What are you familiar with the what are being seen as the primary contributing factors to that with boys, in addition to what you've just said with social media and perhaps this exposure to the world's best, and then that downward that downward comparison to self, like I can never achieve that. Do you know what what kind of uh, impact that's having from like a percentile basis, like that plus what else is? contributing to failure to launch? It's a, it's a complicated issue. Um, yeah. I don't think anybody has the full picture, but there's a, a few things that that we can talk about with respect to that, that I've heard. Um, one is just a, um, a limited access to positive male role models in the lives of, of boys. Like 98% of kindergarten teachers are women and the vast majority of elementary school teachers are women. Mm. Um, more boys are growing up in single parent households and most of those are single mothers. So there's an absence of strong masculine presence in the lives of a lot of boys these days. Um, There's also a lot of changes in culture and education where they hear terms like toxic masculinity. And sometimes boys grow up feeling um, uh, ashamed of who they are just as a basis of their biological sex. I've worked with young men in uh, college who have dropped out because their experience was if they didn't sufficiently self-flagellate in their uh, classrooms and apologize for the crime of being a man, in their words, um, they were they were just sort of shamed and and silenced. So that can that culture can obviously be highly variable in terms of its uh, you know intensity or aggressiveness. Um, but and there's also just a um, you can see this in, in the media and the culture is that generally uh, there's a strong push for very strong um, empowered female characters. And there's even been like a, a, a rebranding of old, uh, you know, masculine heroes and archetypes where we're seeing, we're, we're transforming their gender. They're now women or they um, they're kind of cut down a peg by their female equivalents. Mm. Uh, I don't I, I don't think any one thing is 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 making this happen. Um, but uh, I think that there's a there's a lack of a lot of support for for boys and young men. And um, for example, mm-hmm. I, was, I was reached out by a um, by a political advocate in the state of Washington um, a few months back. I actually did an episode about this on the channel called Divide and Conquer. And for, I think, the second month, the second year in a row, they had put an initiative at the state legislature to found a commission on boys and men to kind of examine and potentially address issues that seem to be disproportionately affecting boys and men. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a number of different commissions. There's a commission on women. There's a commission on LGBT issues. There's a commission on X, Y, and Z. And for the second year in a row, even though it enjoyed bipartisan support and was nominated by two female um, Democratic representatives, it didn't even get to the floor for a vote. And uh, it's just, 
And I wow. think I think the issue here is that often when we talk about supporting men and boys, the subtext here is we we we're going to take that time, energy, and resources away from women, like it's a zero sum game, or that there's kind of a social justice element to it. Well, men and boys had their time, and so this is just um, redistributing the balance in like an apocal historical perspective. So, I, and I think those are. Um, deviations from uh, the, the most just and flourishing society that we can potentially have. Yeah, it's interesting. It is super multivariate and the cultural influences beyond media and screens and gaming are pretty profound just with, as you're describing some of the cultural shifts and transformations that we're living through. Yeah. Fascinating topic unto itself. Yeah, it would be, um, I'd be tough to be a kid and we have to raise kids in today's day and age. So all the best to you, man. It's, um, it's, I think it's a hard job under the, the best of circumstances. It just seems fraught with so many challenges that um, no previous generation of parents have ever really been called to confront. So yeah. they've been uncharted territory in a lot of these respects. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for the well wishes as sure. I navigate these choppy waters of parenthood. Um, can we talk about your shirt? We can talk about my shirt. Yes. What you got there on your shirt, man? Some mushrooms. Uh, just some regular mushrooms. Uh, you know, some they shiitake. Might, can... <laughs> some shiitakes. They might be psilocybin mushroom mushrooms that contain psilocybin. Yeah. Mm. Why might you be wearing a, a shirt of mushrooms that may contain psilocybin? Yeah, I'm really excited, profoundly excited about the, I think what's generally being termed the psychedelic renaissance that we're living through right now. There's a tremendous amount of energy research that's happening uh, where we've entered this, this new arena or this new, this new era of psychedelics going mainstream, mainly for mental health purposes and the, the research. A lot, I pay most attention to what's coming out of the John Hopkins uh, Center for Consciousness Studies and there are other, you know, many major research universities have uh, centers of research just around psychedelics and, and mainly their impact on mental health. Uh, I'm interested in psychedelics both for their uh, benefits on, on mental health and addiction and also for, you just used the term flourishing for general human flourishing. Um, so yeah, I've got, I've, I've got a lot of excitement about the, the psychedelic world, where it is, where it's headed. And my wife got me this. She knows my enthusiasm <laughs> for this space. There, there definitely used to be a, a greater synergy between clinical psychology and psychedelics, as you know, back in the day. Um, in fact, I, I think there was a time when one of the founders of AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, actually considered uh, dis distributing, I think it was LSD at um, sessions because he had yeah. a psychedelic experience, I think with Tim Leary, that yeah. led to a, a, a spiritual transformation that helped him to move in the direction of his sobriety. Yeah, it, it used to be much more common. And then I don't really understand what happens, but it it really got shut down hard in the 70s. The 60s happens. It was yeah. the 60s, actually. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe it was a counter uh, cultural revolutionary push, and all these substances became controlled and schedule one. Um, even though, interestingly, as you know, but for the viewers, uh, as far as I am aware, there's never been a psychedelic dependence disorder. 
in the DSM. Like mm -hmm. it seems like it's very, very difficult to become physiologically dependent on psychedelics. It is. And um, it's, it's also, I think, very difficult to overdose on psychedelics. Like you can have some pretty intense psychological experiences, but you might, you might experience ego death, but you might not actually physically yeah. suffer from the experience. Is, is that fair to say? That's fair to say. And I'm, I'm always super careful on this topic to not represent myself as, uh, as an expert or one who would advocate the use of these uh, substances or medicines, as many call them, without really, really, really structured supervision. Um, but yeah, I was listening to a podcast. I listen to things on this topic all the time. And the the host of the of the episode I was listening to said there isn't, as far as we know, any known instances of ODing on LSD, as an example. Like we think it's impossible to overdose on LSD and psilocybin. So yeah, I mean, there's there's safety and obviously there's some radical risk with what you just described. The idea of the of the quote unquote bad trip is real. And people have died using these substances because they have not been in the proper set and setting. So people like thinking I can fly and I'm going to jump off a building, things like that uh, happening. So they're exceptionally powerful and their effects can be salutary against our suffering or they can really exacerbate suffering. So set and setting is always the the, the really important factors to keep in mind. Who, who, What is your mindset going in? What is your intention? Who are you working with? What substance is right for you? Um, there's a massive amount of considerations that I encourage people to uh, work through prior to experimenting at all. This isn't about at all about recreational use. The use in mental health settings is, I mean, as it should be, and as the research has been designed is, is quite controlled mm -hmm. and it should be. So there's other work, Roland Griffiths, who's one of the most well-known people in the space. He's the, the person who founded the Center for Consciousness Studies at Johns Hopkins. And he's, interestingly, he started, I think he started his research um, with I think it was psilocybin and end-stage cancer patients. Mm -hmm. And he now himself is an end-stage cancer patient. And he's been using uh, psilocybin, I think, on and off throughout his research career. And he's a person who, if you hear him speak, he, he got in this relatively late in his research career, never expected to be doing this kind of work. Um, but he's he's presenting beautiful, beautiful accounts of his own experience and the work that he's done as he moves through his dying process. He's terminal. Um, where was I? I? I forget where I was going with that point originally. Um, well, you were talking about the, the yeah, in addition to the, yeah, in addition to the the clinical application, one of the things that Roland Griffiths, who just established this beautiful um, endowment that will secure a seat leading his the department that he'll be departing when he dies. Uh, focusing on well-being, on overall well-being and human flourishing. So that's where most of my interest is. I have a lot of interest on the clinical side as well. I was an addiction spe specialist when I was working uh, clinically day to day. And the outcomes for alcoholism, for all sorts of different types of substance use problems are off the charts with psychedelics. And I think we're just now beginning to understand the, the power of this approach to treatment it's illegal almost everywhere. So there's a lot to happen. MDMA is about to get um, FDA approval for therapeutic 
use for PTSD. MAPS, the which is based in San Francisco, is an organization that's long been an, an advocacy group. They've been uh, doing a, a lot of tremendous work over the years. So there's a lot happening in the clinical space. Most of what's happening is in the clinical space. I'm very, very careful to say I am interested to see what can we do in the well-being and human flourishing side of the equation as well. There hasn't been academic research on that to date because getting funding for that, I think, is still challenging. But there's I have some some interest in understanding the utility for leadership development, as an example, for evolving the consciousness of leaders to meet the very unique challenges that we're facing in the 21st century. So, yeah, it's a topic near and dear to my heart. Yeah. So let's unpack some of the things that you said. So after really shutting down these substances decades ago, they we've seen a resurgence of, in particular, I think psilocybin and MDMA in research contexts. Um, yep. I think California was one of the epicenters for a lot of this research. And it is usually done with cancer patients, especially in stage cancer patients and um, trauma survivors. And it's under very controlled circumstances. It makes sense that that would be the case, I think, because um, if this is going to be, if these substances are going to be like produced and sold as uh, like prescribed medications, well, part of the FDA approval process is it needs to be shown to be effective to treat a specific disorder. I mean, this is how antidepressants and other psychiatric medications get approved. It has to be based on um, amelioration of a specific diagnosable issue versus uh, you know, human flourishing and well-being. This is one of the longstanding complaints of positive psychology, as you know, which is that traditional clinical psychology might be too focused on disorders, on negative aspects of human experience, where there's actually, um, that's just kind of the tip of the iceberg. Yes, it's important to kind of put out the fires first, yeah. but that's just because you got those taken care of doesn't necessarily mean that you're flourishing. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're happy. It doesn't necessarily mean you're anywhere close to your peak functioning. Yeah. And um, there's a, there's not a lot of focus on getting people beyond that. Psychotherapy is still generally associated with solving a problem versus um, moving in the direction of greater awareness or uh, happiness or flourishing, however, whatever positive um, metric you want to use. Yeah. So um, we have uh, that those two substances in particular I'm aware of have a great deal of empirical support for those issues. You talked about addiction. I'm aware that um, ayahuasca in particular has had a lot of success in treating alcoholics in Brazil where it has less of a, um, a legal constraint than here in the United States. Yeah. Um, the use of, and Gabor Mate, I think, talks about the use of psychedelics on addiction. And I think they're particularly interesting because I think... Uh, at the core of most addictions, maybe all addictions, is like an em a, an inner void, an inner emptiness that is being, um, the user is using um, the substance to either numb or temporarily fill. But um, uh, as I often say, you can't really solve an internal problem with an external solution. Mm -hmm. And maybe one of the, re this doesn't sound very scientific at all, but one of the ways in which the psychedelics work to heal addictions is that they kind of work to fill that void with something sustainable, something that's akin to maybe love. I don't know. If, what do you think about that? Yeah, the Stanislav Grof is a transpersonal psychiatrist. So I studied transpersonal psychology. The, the graduate school that I went to at the time was called the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology. It's in Palo Alto, California. It's now called Sophia University. 
And transpersonal psychology is kind of the interface of, I think of it as the interface of world wisdom traditions, many of them, quote unquote, Eastern based and, and quote unquote, Western uh, clinical psychology. So Stanislav Grof is uh, the psychology of the future, I think is one of his classic books that I read as I was thinking about what I wanted to do with my life in my early to mid twenties. And he speaks about addiction and talks about it as the misguided search for spirits. So especially with alcoholism, if we think about the Greek root spiritus and the misguided search for spirit. So call them spirits. I mean, whiskeys, bourbons, they're spirits. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of a clever, clever, clever formulation of all of this. Incidentally, Carl Jung and Bill W., the founder of AA, had a lot of correspondence. I think all in a similar vein of what you're speaking about, this this kind of internal emptiness, this search for uh, a sense of wholeness, a sense of ground, a sense of being worth something, being worthy of being on this planet. We know a lot of people who struggle with addiction come from, if not acute trauma backgrounds, develop backgrounds that that included a lot of developmental trauma. So we could talk about, think about neglect, just being raised in chaotic households. A lot of people, and we have, the genetic predisposition is, is pretty powerful, we now know as well. I use myself as an example. I'm in, I hold this term loosely, but I'm in recovery from alcoholism. So I had, I had massive issues with, uh, with alcohol in my teens into my early 20s. I'm the seventh born of seven children, all of whom have struggled with addiction from process addictions, gambling to substance addictions, all seven. Three of my siblings sadly have died, two of them really directly tied to their addiction. And I think all three uh, of their deaths were related to addiction. So this is a topic very, very near and dear to my heart. We were raised in a household that was that was very was filled with loves, filled in, in many ways with a deep spirituality. And then at the same time, there was there was some neglect, if not some abuse, and that combination of genetic predisposition and uh, challenging developmental environment, I think, it, it created an inter for me an internal sense of self of con of confusion, some time of emptiness, and just to the point that we're speaking about, I found alcohol when I was twelve, and I was like, oh my god. I feel so good. Like this puts me back together again. I, I noticed that is a very common experience among the alcoholics that I worked at. Their first experience with alcohol was very positive. Like, wow, I found it. I found the solution to my suffering. And then of course the solution becomes the problem in ways one could never imagine. And then one is left really bereft, like the suffering that that maybe chased someone into finding substances that ameliorated that suffering exacerbate the suffering a thousandfold. So what I what I found again using my own my own experience and and psychedelics were a part of my journey. I had I used LSD for the first time when I was 16, had this absolutely profound 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 I'll never forget it unitive experience. And for me that I continued to drink alcoholically and use a lot of drugs for about eight years after that that unitive experience I had when I was 16, but it left an indelible mark on me. And it helped me to understand that my perce my perception of reality is just that. It's a constructed perception of reality. And I can put this chemical into my body that radically alters my perception of reality and opens my mind and heart up to ways of being and ways of understanding my place in the world and in the universe that weren't previously available to me. So this, and there's this idea of connection, of filling the void. For me, it gets, and we can bridge into my contemplative practice over the years, perhaps, but it helps me to understand the interdependent nature of my own identity. 
the impermanence of all phenomena. Everything arises, abides, and, and abates. Like, I didn't know all of that then, but having this profound unitive experience, I was just blown away. Like, holy shit, there's- It's also different- not really knowing because anybody can say that. We all know that intellectually, that everything changes, everything arises and falls away. But to have a deep emotional acceptance of that is uh, on a different order of understanding. And I think that psychedelics can facilitate that kind of deep emotional understanding that connects um, at like an embodied level, this kind of detached intellectual understanding, which is really the, I think the, the completion of that understanding, that understanding without the embodied emotional component is sometimes even dangerous. I agree. Yeah. And and that's why integration is such an important part of the process of, of using psychedelics, like integrate prep work, preparatory work, the actual psychedelic work, and then integration work afterwards is critically important because this all gets wildly complicated, but we can talk about the difference between states and traits, right? You can have a state-based experience where you have a change of mind, a change of experience, this deep somatic kind of uh, feeling of connection with all that is this unitive experience that is body based and overwhelms the mind in beautiful ways. Then you can come out of that and feel bereft. Like, Oh, I've been on, like I was plugged in and now I've been unplugged. So integrative work, which I didn't have when I was 16, I continued to use psychedelics throughout my kind of late teens and early twenties. And then took a long hiatus, like 20 year hiatus, um, until recently when I've experimented with them again, a bit, Um, But that integrative work is so important. And I think this is the utility of psychedelics with addiction. It, it, I love the, the metaphor that's often used. What's happening. They think neurologically is that the deep grooves that we get into in our cognitive patterns, right? They have neurological, pretty profound neurological correlates. So they, some talk about psychedelics as imagine the brain has these, it's a, it's a, uh, skiing metaphor, a sledding metaphor in the snow. You imagine these deep grooves that the sled goes down again and again and again. Even if you try to get on, cut a fresh track, if you're close, you're going to get pulled into that other groove. So these are the repetitive ways we think and the repetitive ways we feel. The idea with psychedelic and, and imagine the power of that in addiction. It's been so deeply ingrained in our psyches and our neurology that we're worthless. Um, that were failures, all this stuff that I certainly used to think and feel about myself. Psychedelics, it is said, and they're still investigating all of this, of course, it's like a fresh coat of snow that fills in all of the grooves in our neurology. And we release all these priors, these prior beliefs, these prior experiences, and we're able to see the world as if with new eyes. And then that leaves a mark. So integration work is to say that wasn't just bullshit, like a drug induced experience. You're, you were able to have a deeply integrated experience of your neurology firing simultaneously. This is what it looks like when the brain fires in ways that enhance connectivity, re- reduce our dependence on the prefrontal cortex and the, the seat of this kind of individual separate sense of self that gets relaxed. And we have more integration through the limbic system and other parts of the brain and it's and experiences fresh and new. So a person has the opportunity to see the world in a way they had never, ever seen it before, and then come back out of that experience with skilled therapists, they can then integrate that experience against this prior history that they've had. There have been accounts where like decades long alcoholics have had a single session with psychedelics and then with integrative work and have not had a drink again for years, for many yeah, years. I think, so, I think it's a really, 
great way that you explained it, Chris, with the snow. And uh, I do believe that the integration really is key. I've I've worked with a number of folks in my clinical practice who have gone on, let's say, one of those paid shamanistic experiences. They flow down yeah. to Ecuador or Peru. And they had a couple of ayahuasca ceremonies and they come back and they feel like a new person. They, they talk about the, the, the power and the intensity of the experience, how their destiny was revealed, how they were able to examine and heal a lot of their pre-existing personal traumas. It was to listen to them. It was like a turning point in their lives. Yeah. But that was still while the metabolites were circulating within them. And unfortunately, after about a month or two, they were often largely back to the way that they were before that experience. Maybe not exactly the same, like you said, yeah. with your uh, experience as a teenager, uh, even though you did go back to drinking, it did, you never forgot that experience. And it may have been part of the, 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 you know, the impetus to eventually move in the direction of recovery, uh, you know, it's sure. yeah. that yeah, it was a paradigm change. shift, you know, it, it, it showed me a different way of seeing my place in the world. And so there's a lot of potential in the substance itself, but I do believe it does need to be integrated into a person's routine. And 100%. potentially the best way to do that is in a, a, a longstanding relationship or a community that supports and understands that type of experience, mm -hmm. um, because it's very difficult to make those changes in isolation. Um, because also what can be revealed, I think in some psychedelic sessions can be fairly destabilizing from your, you know, pre-existing worldview, the way that you think reality works and the way that yeah. you, the universe operates. Um, some of those longstanding beliefs can be challenged or shattered, and that can be very difficult to process, especially with somebody who has no, who has never experienced something along those lines. Yeah. That's why it's, I mean, assessment is critical. They're not for everybody. There are certain presentations where it would be best for the, that particular person to, to never engage with psychedelic use at all. So mm -hmm. screening, yeah, screening, planning, what to expect, what to not expect, and then, and then integration. And then like, this is underground work has been happening forever, ever since these substances have been used. Uh, in the Bay Area, there's a, there's been a massive underground movement for a very long time. Sure. Mm -hmm. So there are really, and, and now all of these models, these training models are coming above ground. There's loads of certification programs that are happening everywhere mm -hmm. to, to, to prepare therapists to do this work skillfully. So yeah, the integrative work is, is exceptionally important. And contemplative practice, a lot of meditators have come to meditative practice through psychedelic use in order to integrate that experience. It's kind of Sometimes that like the path to awakening has two lanes and the, this is kind of, kind of jokes with this. The fast lane is through psychedelics and the slow lane is through contemplative practice. I think that it's for me, at least it's been a combination of the two, the contemplative practice that I've had for many years now is deeply inspired by the experiences that I've had on psychedelics. So I think part for me, part of integration is meditation. Part of integration, as you're saying, is finding community people who have a more kind of expanded view perhaps of a self-world construct and then developing community and, and continuing to do this really important work after the experiences. And imagine if you were in a contemplative practice on psychedelics, the, um, the way that you could potentially accelerate your development. Yeah. Now um, let's talk about consciousness because you hinted on that with maybe your, uh, your, uh, I'm not meaning to be condescending, but grand vision of the psychedelic um, 
uh, work that you're uh, approaching. I remember reading uh, an essay by Houston in college called Do Drugs Have Religious Import? And he promulgated this theory that one of the reasons why human beings evolved so rapidly from our primate ancestors is that there was a group of chimps that stumbled upon some psychedelic mushrooms, most likely. And it was like, you know, the monolith in 2001, suddenly their consciousness has radically been elevated and they could perceive through time versus the eternal present of the animals, or they could see multiple uses of objects as, as potentially tools, as opposed to just, uh, you know, things in their environment, uh, helps them develop language. Um, that basically the, the impetus to develop human consciousness was potentially a psychedelic experience on like a tribal scale. Yeah. So we're talking about radical um, changes to uh, like a, a self as a consequence of changes to consciousness. And this is really tricky because it's, we, we can only, it seems like talk about consciousness in terms of metaphors. Like we talk about like elevating consciousness. It's like, but it's not even, is it a thing? You know, can, can something that isn't a thing be elevated? Like, how do you define it? If, if it's hard to define, how can we really talk about it? I mean, what do you, what do you think about all this? I love it all. I love to talk about it. The description that you're the of the the article that you read in, in you said college or grad school is depicted in the. Have you heard of the movie Fantastic Fungi? Uh, I saw that uh, uh, in the theaters a while back. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, there's a sequence in that movie that depicts they 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 depict it as early hominids who stumbled upon. Uh, psilocybin, and then as and and I won't repeat everything you said. You described it so beautifully, but the, the, as part of the evolutionary leap that humans made in the animal kingdom, some of it credited to I think pre-existing neurological evolution, and then supercharged with like with the impact of psychedelics. Yeah, the topic of consciousness is a massively complicated one, and another one that I'm like an amateur at, kind of philosophically. So I can speak about kind of my loosely held views and it's a topic I read a lot about, but um, certainly didn't, I didn't prepare in a way to offer. Uh, We're just talking, man. It, it, yeah. Yeah. To, I really represent like, the scientific literature on the subject. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think there's this like consciousness as a thing um, is there, there's some philosophical, I think, underpinnings that we have to think about, like ontological, without getting fa super fancy here, but like ontological reductionism as a philosophical stance that one may view consciousness from, where we can break it down into its constituents parts, and that's how we'll understand it. From that position, I think consciousness is described by adherence to, to kind of scientism or, or ontological reductionism more broadly that consciousness is simply an epiphenomenon of neurology, that we don't understand it, but somehow all of this kind of neuronal firing happens and a byproduct of that or an epiphenomenon of that is consciousness. So that's that's an one way to phenomenon. Yeah, totally. yeah, emergent, that's one way to understand consciousness, right? Then we have these contemplative traditions where the idea is that we as human beings 
are just plugged into this kind of broader, almost immaterial awareness. And we're experiencing awareness. When we sit in meditation, when we quiet the, the rational mind, kind of quiet the left hemisphere uh, and get in touch with kind of right hemisphere and somatic experience, that's when we begin to tap into just awareness more broadly. And psychedelic experiences, I think, transmit this as well, where we experience our, our conscious awareness is a, a, an experience that is just, a, 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 it's not, a, not quite a prior, but it's just something that we're able to tap into. It's not thought of as, as, an, as an emergent property of neurology but rather we're tapping into something beyond ourselves that we're co-creating uh, as an experience of being alive in this world. So it depends that it gets, it gets tricky. And this is where I have to like prepare and think and write more to present like a coherent picture on this. Um, but there's, there's different ways of approaching the idea of consciousness, one based in more physicalism or materialism, and one that's based in more of a kind of non-material ontology uh, or approach to, to being and knowing. So it depends on which avenue we're approaching the question of consciousness from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, what does that make me think of? Um, I, I kind of operate under the assumption that everything that I experience occurs within my consciousness and it's not possible for me to experience something beyond my consciousness, but that doesn't necessarily mean that my consciousness is limited to who I believe I am as a, as like Orion, as a, as an yeah. based creature, or even as a, um, a, an awareness that's bounded by my, uh, physical body, potentially it that's, that's getting pretty far out though. Um, what does, does get far out. Yeah. So let's actually kind of bring it more practical. Like what, what, what's the point? Like what, what what do you get out of it? I get that, you know, psychedelic experiences might help addicts recover. They might help folks uh, feel uh, like they have a place in the world. And those are no small things. Um, but when we talk about elevating consciousness, you know, I'm playing devil's advocate here, but sell me on how this is not like spiritually masturbatory. Like, what's the point? Yeah. Well, I think the the I love the topic of spiritual uh, spiritual bypass, spiritual materialism, or spiritual bypass, and I think that there's a risk in that in psychedelics experience. I think there's a risk in that in contemplative practice for sure, and to ground that concept. Can you explain what that is to people who might not know what that is? Yeah, so spiritual bypass in particular is I'm going to take all of the difficulties that in my that are in my life. And I'm just going to kind of turn from them. And it's characterized, I think, in in, in judgmental ways as, as like, uh, as, as I don't know, kind of like tree hugger, hippie kind of thing. Like, there's no problems. I'm at one with the world. Everything's fine. My contemplative meditation practice and yoga keep me grounded and free. And it's a, it's a neglect or a turning away from actually working through the difficulties that one might have. I love the expression, the only way past is through. And sometimes people leverage spiritual practices. I think sometimes people can leverage psychedelics, but it's harder to do this because you can't like, you can't play with them. They're going to reveal to you what you need to work on in large part. Um, but spiritual bypass, I always think of the image of here's the, the issues and struggles that I'm having, and I'm just going to kind of work around them through this kind of 
spiritual practice, spiritual materialism on top of that is then I'm going to let people know I'm going to present myself in a way I'm going to actually actually acquire things that demonstrate to the world, that signal to the world, just how spiritually evolved I am. And the fact of the matter is that core issues sometimes haven't been worked through. So that's kind of the, the concepts of spiritual bypass and spiritual materialism together. So I think a ground like grounded grounded spirituality or like using psychedelics or using contemplative practice in a, in a grounded and authentic way and relating this to consciousness expand I love the idea of expanding I don't know elevating or expanding our consciousness so I can recognize what's not me in Buddhism the classic idea is not self and not self so if I, if I sit down to meditate I have the, I can develop the ability to see the, the impermanent nature, as we were describing a bit earlier, of my thoughts. I can watch them arise. I can watch them abide. I can watch them go. I don't know where they're coming from. I don't know where they're going. And I don't need to know. I can just notice them. Similarly, we can notice our emotional experiences and not feel identified with them. It's not me, myself, and mine, like expressions of I am an angry person or I am depressed. We can begin to question that. And I love teaching this. This gets existential too, right? It's like, I am aware of anger in my body. In, in the, I like to even say in the body. I am aware of anger in the body. And then you locate where it is. You feel it. You watch it. You attend to it. You figure out if there's a signal that's worth paying attention to or if there's not. And then if there's not, you can just let it literally let it go, watch it go. If there is, okay, what's the message for this emotion? Oh, thank you very much. I'm going to now act on that emotion. I don't need you anymore. You've delivered your message. So there's a way in which we can become non-identified with our thoughts and with our feelings. And if we think about thoughts and feelings, it's a, a primary way we, we kind of have this self-identity. The question then becomes, well, what's left? And What's left is we, we, I love the idea too of transcend and include. I can still understand and appreciate what it's like to have this rigid self-identity. And when there's utility in that, I can identify as a separate self who has to take action in the world, but I can also let go of that and recognize that this is all ephemeral experience that comes and goes. So it's the ability to kind of toggle into that space and that spaciousness of mind. I think of it as an expanded consciousness. Uh, and then you still have the ability to engage as if you were this rigidly identified self, but you don't have to be attached to that. Yeah, that's really interesting. That that did any of that make sense to me? <laughs> yes. Uh, let's let's try to unpack that a little bit, though. The way you were talking about the rigidly defined self, I um, that made me think of the ego. Uh, to me, the ego is the interface through which I can engage with the world in a practical way, and the world can engage with me. It's mm -hmm. sort of like the desktop with the icons. It's it's so much easier to navigate than what's actually behind the scenes on the processing level. And it yeah. facilitates interaction. It's like this bottleneck. It facilitates interaction between the universe and um, the, the spaciousness within. And I think it's a necessary component to our psychology. So I, there's a lot of like, let's say prejudicial attitudes around ego just necessarily equating bad like we have to get rid of ego i don't even know what that would look like it, like it would be very hard to talk to somebody who didn't have an ego mm -hmm. it would be incredibly frustrating you probably couldn't get anything done with that person yeah. um 
to my mind, the issue is not the ego. The issue is the over-identification with the ego, um, which I think you mentioned. Attachment to the ego. Yeah. To me, it's a, it's an, it's an attachment. It's like, I can, ha I like to use the description of, I can have an emotion or I can be had by the emotion. I can have an ego or I can be had by the ego where I don't, I don't have a recognition that there's, there's an ego that's operative right now that I'm leveraging for the purposes of our dialogue and communication. If I, if I go and lay down on my lawn and I just want to look at the sky and experience the spaciousness of the sky and my consciousness experiencing the spaciousness of that sky, I don't really need the self. I, there doesn't need to be an I in there. I can let the ego go altogether and not right. be identified with that ego self. So I can pick it up. It's like a suit. I, I can put it on and I can take it off. I can put it on when I need it and I can take it off. Most of us don't operate in the world that way. We are fused with our ego. The ego is is our primary method of identifying and we're gripped so tightly around it. We don't even know that we are gripping it. It just is what is it yeah. is. who we are. It's really problematic. It's like being really overly identified with one of your body parts, for instance, because the ego is just one part of your, your psycho spiritual self. Yeah, totally. Um, but that's pretty novel. That's pretty novel for a lot of people. That's why I like talking about this. Like, it's like, so I love teaching people to meditate. It's like, imagine a world in which all this preoccupation with self, all this preoccupation with being good enough or not good enough, imagine a world where all of that suffering can just fade away. And I'm not totally there myself, but I do think of that as awakening. Like, oh, none of the, none of this actually matters. I mean, it matters. I think that's also another great um, potential of psychedelics because you might introduce this concept to people that you don't have to identify with the ego and they're like, that sounds great. How do you do it? Like, what do you, where do you put your yeah. hands to detach? It's like, it's right. very difficult to kind of explain the process of some of, of arriving at some of these places, um, uh, psychologically yeah. or spiritually, but for better or for worse, what is a common experience to certain psychedelic substances, especially ayahuasca is generally referred to as ego death that in the first hour, uh, if you drink the tea, there is a, a really um, often a tight constriction of the self where it yeah. does feel like it's, it's about to die before it kind of explodes into this more expansive experience of self or consciousness or awareness. Yeah. And, um, I think the, the first few times that happens, people can be really terrified potentially. Um, but maybe with repeat experience, people can get a little bit more uh, fluid with the ability to kind of move between ego and non-ego states like yeah. the sense of oh i've gone through this this isn't my first rodeo i've gone through this this process many times um and i have developed a little bit of spaciousness between those two states and maybe even some uh like ability to to control it to some level you know yeah to, to toggle it to toggle it on and off i think it's like non-dual i mean we're, what we're describing without using the term is non-dual awareness right because if one has an experience of non-dual awareness, so subject and object fall away, there isn't an I and a, and a me. There isn't an, an I that that my body is has use like this I can operate this body, and there's this duality that we have internally between like ego and then self or I and self. Non-dual consciousness just gets rid of of that of that perceived duality, but that's why I like in developmental terms the idea of transcend but include. When I learned to crawl, 
or when I learned to walk, it doesn't mean I, I've forgotten how to crawl. When I learned to run, it doesn't mean I've forgotten how to walk. When I experience non-dual consciousness or non-dual awareness, it doesn't mean I've forgotten how to operate in a more dualistic mindset or a more dualistic worldview. So it just gives a, a different range of, of choices. Uh, and yeah. and dual awareness, I think, reduces, has the, has the benefit, perhaps the purpose of really reducing what is all of this egoic suffering that most of us as human beings experience that can actually go away. This is the, the, this is what's expressed. I'm most familiar with Buddhism. And this is the, we're describing in some ways, the, the four noble truths, you know, and there's all sorts of different secular and spiritual ways to talk and think about this. And Alan Watts talked about this a lot. And he was one of the first people to bring Buddhism into popular consciousness in yeah. the United States in the earlier 20th century. I'm thinking about his book, The Wisdom of Insecurity, where he basically says that the that the sickness that envelops most people today is this idea that there's an I and a me. There, the schism is yeah. itself the issue. And there's manifestations of that, like depression or anxiety or addictions. Right. But the fundamental cause of it is that you believe that there's like this good I and this bad me, and the good I needs to kind of whip the bad me into shape so that it becomes in line with its idea of how things should be. Totally. That's kind of a never ending, um, it's a futile endeavor because you can never actually satisfy it. And is the me really all that bad? And is the I really all that good? Uh, maybe those are also part of the, you know, what's beyond good and evil? What's beyond good and bad? Yeah. That's potentially on the other side of this uh, non-dual awareness. Yeah. So totally. let's let, uh, let me let me press you a little bit because um, we were talking about how one of the goals of um, your resurgent interest in psychedelics is to use it in a leadership capacity. Yeah. So on some level, you'd think, "Wow, that sounds really good. Let's have some enlightened leaders heading our nations and our organizations." Um, but then I'm thinking, in practical matters, you get some guy who's elected president, and he says, "You know." I and me is just an illusion and uh, let's all come together in this transitory state. And I'm aware of the feeling in my, in my heart about, it's like, I just don't understand how that's going to fly, you know? So again, to go back to the idea of like, what's the point? So I understand how the point of maybe elevating consciousness past a non-dual awareness is the alleviation of a great deal of, let's say, individual suffering and maybe even collective suffering because individual suffering is enacted usually in our relationships and our communities. Um, but how would that help leaders in particular? Like, why would that be beneficial? Yeah, let me see how, I just want to take a moment to think how I want to respond to that. Um, so having... I do, I'm doing some of this work now. So I'm, I remain in the corporate well-being, organizational development, leadership development space. So why don't I, I'm going to start there. I'll, that'll be kind of the entry point in. This is a non-psychedelic. I'm not currently using psychedelics in the leadership development work that I'm doing, though I would love to at the organization where I am, at any organization for that matter. So the, the approach that I'm taking now in leadership development work at the company I'm, I'm currently uh, currently working for is operationalizing a very well-known framework of emotional intelligence, Daniel Goleman, Daniel Goleman's emotional intelligence framework. And that framework consists of four building blocks, self-awareness, social awareness, uh, or self-awareness, self-management on the intrapersonal side, social awareness and relationship management on the interpersonal side. 
So this is a this is just a way to get get a, a foothold here on this topic. So I joined this company. None of this had existed there before. So I we could ask why why did I decide to do that? The reason that I decided to do that is because, and this is all within the constraints of a for-profit, a private for-profit corporation, right? We could talk about all of that. That's beyond the, the scope of what we're here to talk about today. But I'm talking about within the existing kind of macroeconomic frame that we we all live in together in the world today. So my interest in developing the emotional intelligence of leaders is to help them to see beyond themselves, to see beyond their interests, to help the company to see beyond itself, to see beyond only its interests, to have individual leaders, again, recognize the implicit interdependence that everything that they do relies on, for the company to recognize the implicit interdependence that everything that the company does relies on, so how do we become, I, I, I'm crazy about the idea of servant leadership. So how do I help those who work at the company where I am become great servant leaders? Well, first, let's help them to recognize this I-me difference. Let's help them to recognize that, okay, I have this ego that can have me, or it's something that I can have and leverage and use to help my team feel like I really care about them. I talk a lot about a culture of care, like an authentic culture of care where people feel seen, heard, cared for, and understood. We need a lot of emotional intelligence to get there. We need to understand, the, to me, the, the law of, of mutuality and reciprocity in our relationships. When we demonstrate the, this level of care that's born through emotional intelligence, high-level emotional intelligence, which can push us into, close to, I think, at the higher levels, to this kind of non-dual awareness, then I have people who, who are happier, they're healthier, from a business outcome perspective, they're going to stay longer. They're going to work more efficiently and more effectively. They're going to be better teammates. They're going to be more likely to then advance with the company. And that's going to help us to meet our goals as a company even more effectively. On the corporate side, what is like, there's a lot of talk about, I roll my eyes a little bit, corporate social responsibility, uh, ESG work, environment, sustainability, and governance in the corporate world right now. I roll my eyes because some of it has just become like, table stakes, you have to present what you're doing. There's a lot of superficial work that's being done. I like to ask myself, what is this? What does this work look like in a, in a really authentic and meaningful way? It means that we have operations in a lot of emerging markets. What would it be like for us to actually understand what it is to be a good corporate citizen in this environment? What would it be like to connect with nonprofits that are in the area and have our employees volunteer with them? There's, there's a sense of self that's expanded. We understand that I am a part of something that's greater than me. I only work at the company I work because the company exists. I can only contribute to the community where we have operations because the community exists. It's the only reason we get to be there. So there's the, you see what I'm talking about. There's like these concentric circles in expanding the way we identify with, our, with ourselves and with our community. I think for me, psychedelics, as you've described with what Alan Watts has said and others have experienced, I've experienced, it's like this rapid, like pulling down of the veil. It's like, whoa, holy cow, I am so deeply connected with all that is. And you don't have to tell me, I just experienced it. 
It's like, we don't need an 18 hour emotional intelligence training. We need a psychedelic journey or a, or a retreat that's well facilitated and has integrated leadership development coaching afterwards. And then we're going to accelerate this kind of development in the corporate world or in, in NGOs or in government so much more rapidly and quickly than we can with these more, what, what I think of as more kind of pedestrian, I get frustrated. It's like, oh my God, we could be doing this so much more efficiently <laughs> if, we, if we had some psychedelic magic in the mix. So like the caricature that you said of a president saying, we are all one and blah, 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 blah. There, there, we have real, and I'm an idealist, absolutely. Uh, and I'm committed to idealism and then we'll fall short. I'll fall short of the ideals that I have, but at least it'll get me at least hopefully somewhere in the direction of doing good with and for the world. We have these profound crises that we're facing. We have climate, we have a climate crisis. We have a socio-political crisis. We have tied into an economic crisis. Like we, in my view, we we better evolve our, our ability to lead more effectively in a way that's based in holism and not in like this reductionistic materialism. That's a choice that we can, if we can evolve enough minds to say, hey, what would it be like to live? Jeremy Lent is a philosopher who I love reading. What would it be like to live in a world that's prioritizing our ecological integration with the life that is all around us, as, as opposed to the, the yeah. exploitation uh, of, of natural resources? Like we can talk about fundamental shifts in the way we relate to one another and we relate to the natural world. So I get idealistic in that direction. So this would be a project that would take some time. There's something that I've read, I forget who wrote this, like if you change, if we, if we can be successful in evolving the consciousness of 3% of the world population, there'll be knock-on effects, secondary effects, second, third order effects, where then the cascading changes will just start to happen in a way that develops a more truly sustainable, sustainable world. So that's a, Hi, yeah, I, went, I went on for a while there, but. Oh, it's good. I'd love to hear your perspective. I, I'm not nearly as idealistic as you are, um, but I, I do have <laughs> your uh, beliefs about the necessity for for leadership, and I, I don't think that we see a lot of um, great leadership uh, in today's day and age. And I think partly that has to do with we we need folks who are um, you know willing to stand on their mission and to be involved with their uh, vision for the future, uh, even if it makes them unpopular. I think a lot of leadership these days is based on um, maintaining positions of power, which is generally about catering to what people kind of want to hear. And there's a certain pragmatics that goes into uh, you know politics that can't practically be ignored. Um, but a lot of policies these days are, are made by you know, popular opinion, which is of course shaped by the social media and it becomes this kind of vicious cycle yeah. where, you know, who's really leading who. And uh, it's becoming, I don't know if it's becoming harder, maybe it's always been rare, but for someone to to stand up with a bold new vision for the future that that is, uh, you know, he's willing to, or she's willing to advance even if uh, it may not be popular. To do so. And I think that's actually where some of the great transformational social movements have come from in, in my recent memory, not because they've emerged out of, let's say, uh, popularity polls for what the uh, the general populace thinks needs to happen. Totally. Yeah. I mean, that from a political, political leadership perspective, I couldn't agree more. I mean, we're in the throes of populist movements around the world. And when we're living with the consequences of that, that's not leader, that's not leading, that's following, right? It's I, 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 like servant 
leadership is is identifying what are the problems that we can agree are happening and then boldly leading new solutions to those problems. Populism for me isn't even like populist leaders to me in a way aren't even leaders. They're they're just riding the coattails of popular opinion, stoking stoking up the energies that support those popular opinions and then exacerbating the divisions, I think, that are present. And this is across the political spectrum. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. I don't see that necessarily unique to what is traditionally popularly identified as populist movements. I think both sides are doing it across the spectrum. Chris, I think we could probably talk for the next several hours, but we might be taxing my audience's attention span at this point. Um, uh, Really interesting conversation. I loved what we were getting into with the psychedelics and the consciousness in particular, and I hope that will be of interest to the listeners as well. Um, If people... Do you, let me ask you, do you want to be found? Usually at this point in the conversation, I talk to people who have like social media presences and they're like, hey, if people want to know more about you and what you're doing, this is how they can find you. Do you want to be found? And if so, how would you want people to find you? Yeah, I mean, through LinkedIn is the easiest way to find me. If you just search Chris Harrison, I think I'm in there as like Chris Harrison, PhD to make it easier to find me. Um, that's the easiest place. I don't have, yeah, I don't have a big social social media Um footprint anywhere but I'll i put but a, I'm, I'm happy for people to reach out if they want to if they want to chat i always love networking with people so sure i'll put a link to your uh linkedin in the description of the video then okay any final words before we wrap up just thank you yeah it's it's just fun to have this conversation with you thank you for what you're doing and yeah maybe some people heard some things they hadn't heard before and it's piqued your interest in checking out things maybe you hadn't thought about checking out before so i think so i hope so anyway me too It was a a real pleasure to catch up and to have you on the podcast today, Chris. Thank you for your time. Likewise. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.